everyone, and welcome back to Radio Monash's No Theory. I'm your host, Simone. And I'm Lydia. We're here today with Ian Parsons, who is a musicologist from Melbourne, Australia. He has a particular interest um, in the connections between music and philosophy. He completed his PhD at Monash University, where he developed an interpretation of Stockhausen's opera cycle, Licht, from the perspective of Heideggerian phenomenology and Lacanian psychoanalysis. As well as teaching at Monash University, he, he has also lectured and provided research coaching in the Master's um, Australian Licht course at the Royal Conservatory in The Hague and is a regular guest presenter at the Stockhausen courses in Curtin, Germany. Prior to his studies and work in musicology, he had a background in social policy and law reform in both the public and community sectors. He presents a weekly radio show in Melbourne, Australia that focuses on avant-garde music. Welcome, Ian. How are you today? Oh, we can't hear you, Ian. We're just having a few technical difficulties, everyone. We might just have to go off air um, very shortly. Bear with us and we will be right back. Hi again, everyone. We're back and hopefully all resolved. Um, So as we were just mentioning, we're here today with musicologist Dr. Ian Parsons. How are you, Ian? Can you hear us okay now? I'm very, I'm very well. I can hear you well. Hopefully you can hear me. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. We definitely can. And um, yeah, it's such a pleasure to have you here today. Uh, so some of the things we were just discussing, we were introducing your PhD and your thesis, but obviously it's quite a complex topic. Um, would you be able to explain it to us, giving us a bit more detail of what your research Yeah, of course. Uh, well, it, it all derived from my fairly obsessive passion with the music of Karl Heinz. Stockhausen, a German composer, who um, I'm a little bit obsessed with, and he wrote, amongst other things, a huge opera cycle. It's a seven-part opera cycle called Licht, or Light, and its seven parts represent the seven days of the week and revolve around essentially three kind of archetypal energies or characters. Michael, who's this sort of cosmic creator, Eve, who is a kind of sexualized mother of the earth and lucifer who's this anarchist angel and it's all about their relationships and their their characters and and so on it's huge huge work it it took about 26 years to compose it it, uh, takes about 29 hours to perform it's performed over seven days and uh it's 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 really one of the most significant works of western art i think but a lot of people have been kind of a little bit um frightened by it particularly because of this emphasis it seems to have in all this kind of cosmic spirituality that's all seemed a little bit weird to a lot of people a lot of people have been put off by that and yet i've always had a sense that this is a work that's much more about who we are as human beings and rather than about a kind of a mythology or a spirituality that's separate from us. So I was interested in exploring how we can understand this work through the symbolism of its music, the way the music works in it, uh, as a as a kind of a, a study of human personality. So I tried to draw from different philosophers and different uh, theoretical models of the human psyche as an attempt to do that. So that's essentially what it was all about. 
So what were some of your main findings from your PhD? Well, I guess, I mean, I mainly drew from, from two important figures. Uh, Martin Heidegger, who was belongs to the phenomenology school of philosophy there, the uh, group of philosophers who whose basic view is that the world is something we only ever know as a as the way in which we experience. We never really know the world as it is. We know it through the lens of our experience. And Heidegger in particular talked about how that experience for us is the experience of people who live in the here and now, and yet we're curious about things like eternity and infinity. So he was one, one um, sort of basis I worked from. The other was the French psychoanalyst Charles Lacan, and he's someone who is very, very difficult to understand, and that was one good reason for choosing him, because I thought that probably my examiners won't understand him either, so <laughs> if I've got everything wrong, they won't know. But aside from that, he had this idea of three different aspects of, of human personality that seemed to fit with these three characters that Bisht is based on. So all of that, to me, ultimately represented a story of the human psyche that is basically about us constantly seeking for an integration of these different aspects of who we are as we seek to work out our place as human beings living in the here and now, curious about an infinite world and eternal and notions of eternity and all of this sort of stuff how we're constantly seeking for some sort of balance in all of that, to integrate all these conflicting aspects of who we are. We never find that balance. It's never found in the operas. The three characters who are always trying to find a way to connect with each other never really do. They never really manage it. They always end up uh, sort of dispersing again. And yet, that while that sounds like a very pessimistic view of of the universe and of who we are as people, but the different strands of our lives never seem to really come together. It's presented as a very positive thing throughout these opposites, a very uplifting experience. So it gives us this sense that the search for understanding who we are and bringing the different parts of who we are together, although we never achieve it, the search itself is continually reju rejuvenating and regenerating. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Just on that, actually, because I was um, having a little bit of a read of an interview you did, because I saw that you won the 2018 Art Faculty's three-minute thesis competition um, with your PhD. And there was a really interesting quote in there from you where you said that your research is an indicator of how music can show us something different about the way we live our lives. We are dynamic beings, not just static subjects. And this can be a revealing lesson in how we think about human personality. Um, so yeah, you've already explained that a little bit, but could you maybe discuss that even more for us? Yeah, and, and this, I guess, kind of relates to something that Stockhausen himself said. He, he described music or a musical score as being like a piece of DNA, you know, that there are the different strands of what make us human beings dormant there in a piece of written music. And when it's performed, it comes to life as a living being. And I think when we look at music and study music, you know, 
doesn't necessarily happen with every piece of music. Some music is just written for no purpose other than to provide us with a bit of a diversion and something to kind of, you know, chill out to or something. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, but sometimes music that's written with a lot of kind of care to how it's structured, when we look at what is happening within the music and think about that as representing things that happen within ourselves. So it's kind of recognising that reality, the universe, all follows the same sorts of laws, the same sorts of relationships. And when we see that in music, we can look at what's happening in music and think, well, what does that mean for what might be happening in my life? What do I think that might mean for what's happening in my community or in society more generally or indeed in the universe more generally? So music can be a living thing that uh, kind of mirrors or even is a, a, a seed for what is happening beyond the piece of music itself. Mm-hmm. Um Amazing. On that note of Stockhausen, then, we might actually go for our first song break of the day. So you've selected for us um, Etude by Stockhausen. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about this piece and why you chose it? Yes, well, it's really one of his very early works. It was, it was, he created it in 1952. It's an electronic piece for tape. He did it all manually. This was before there was any kind of electronic music creating uh instruments or machinery around Uh, so he did it with just recording different piano strings being plucked and then he would manipulate the noise in different ways physically cut up the tapes glue them together and he did it all in his studio as a student and created this really one of the very first pieces of electronic music. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Very different to today and, you know, DJs and whatnot. So mm. <laughs> very yeah. interesting. Fantastic. Well, we hope you all enjoy. This is Etude by Stockhausen. We'll be back shortly. Welcome back, everyone. This is Radio Monash's No Theory. Simone and I are here today with musicologist Dr. Ian Parsons. So, Ian, you also host your own radio show on PBS. It's titled The Sound Barrier, where you focus on avant-garde art music. Um, can you tell us a little about, bit about what draws you to this kind of music? Yeah, well, I, it's just constantly fascinating. I, I think, in, I mean, I, I have to say I always find categorising music a very difficult thing to do and, and not really... A productive thing to do but sometimes we just can't afford it and I although I use the term art music I absolutely hate it because I think it's you know it sounds quite elitist and everything but avant-garde I guess by definition it's you know it's music that's at the forefront of change so it's music that's trying to find new ways of, of expressing and being what music can be and I think we can so much be enriched by that we can so much be expanded by that and it's just so very very interesting you know if if we didn't have people testing the barriers of music you know pushing beyond what was familiar and what people were comfortable with we would still be listening to you know Gregorian playing chant or something (laughs) and you know so we always have to change and and some of the music that's been created today is really really interesting stunning stuff but it gets very very little attention so i feel you know very privileged that pbs have given me the opportunity to to do a weekly show looking at avant-garde music Mm -hmm. so why are you such an avid fan specifically of stockhausen 
look, I don't know. It, it just kind of, it, it sort of seemed to be a natural morphing of my musical development, which I have to confess began when I was a little kid with Rolf Harris, which is rather, um, uh, I don't think terribly good to be confessing to these days. <laughs> it developed through that into classical music and then into sort of more modern classical music. And Stockhausen just seemed to encompass everything. And the thing about his music, I think, that's particularly extraordinary is that, I mean, he wrote something like 370 pieces. And in every one of them, he's kind of exploring something new and different. So each one of his pieces has got something interesting and new to look at in it that he's trying to explore. So he's a very, very adventurous composer. He was, he died now, uh, well, 13 years, nearly 14 years ago now. So he's um, uh, a composer who's made such a mark on what we can understand music to be and was ceaselessly energetic in exploring what that could be. Mm -hmm. And can you remember the very first time you discovered his music? Yes, I, I can. And it was one of his pieces, it's actually one of his most famous pieces and also one of his most notorious and it's his Helicopter String Quartet, which is, which is actually from the Liszt opera cycle. It's the third scene of the Wednesday opera and it involves a string quartet, so two violins, viola and cello, each performing in their own helicopter and the helicopter flies around, the four helicopters are flying around in the sky above the theatre and so the music of the instruments and the noise of the engines and the rotor blades is all mixed and uh, broadcast back live into the auditorium. So it's a totally, totally crazy piece of music and obviously pretty difficult to perform because you need four helicopters for it. <laughs> and um, it's, uh, uh, it was one of the first pieces of his that I got to know. And it, 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 you could YouTube it or Google it. It goes for about half an hour and it um, uh, is pretty wild. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it would leave an impression, and it obviously yeah. has. <laughs> it would yes, be amazing it, to it absolutely alive. did. In <laughs> fact, I saw it, it was performed, uh, about half of the Liszt cycle was performed in Amsterdam a couple of years ago, and um, uh, the, the whole lot has never been performed all in one go. The seven operas have been done separately, but not all together. And about half of it was all done in um, Amsterdam a couple of years ago, including the helicopter string quartet. And on the very first performance, the cellist's bow broke in the middle of the performance. And of course, you know, she's up in the sky and with a, in a helicopter, you can't sort of run off and um, get another cello bow like that. Yeah. So it's a, it's a piece that you can't afford too much to go wrong in it all or you can't fix it very uh -huh. quickly. I'm, I'm just imagining it would be like a a funding but also be like a health and safety nightmare but all worth yes. it in the end yes, obviously absolutely um, so what are some of your favorite experimental aesthetics and techniques uh well it's it's very it's such a hard question to answer because i think almost anything can be wonderful if it's done in a creative way. A thing that uh, the uh, experimental avant-garde composer, John Cage, once said back a long time ago, now, back in the 1930s, he said, anything can be music if we choose to listen to it as music. The noise of traffic, the noise of the weather, the noise of uh, the, the static that you get between stations on old radios. We think of those as irritating noises, but if we choose to listen to them as music, 
we understand and experience them in very different ways. So for me to say what's my kind of most loved or favourite would be really difficult because I think almost anything that's done in music, particularly if it's done adventurously and in a sort of spirit of, of curiosity to try and find something new and exciting in music, can be new and exciting, can be wonderful. Mm-hmm. It just has to be created in a way that has that energy to it and we have to listen to it with an openness to find that in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. And um, on the PBS website, you've described your show as one that breaks all the barriers and opens up a whole universe of musical possibilities and ideas, which is basically what you're elaborating on now. Um, Would you agree that this kind of music is in a way objecting to the status quo artistically? Yeah, it's certainly challenging it. You know, I think one of the problems with the status quo musically is that it so quickly becomes commodified. So Mm. music becomes something that's a product that's sold to make a profit. And, you you know, before you know it, there's merchandise. Mind you, I have a Stockhausen T-shirt, a Stockhausen (laughs) Stockhausen umbrella and a Stockhausen um, uh, coffee cup too. But we won't talk about that. The, The... it so often becomes commodified and we lose what music can be and should be to us and that's something that challenges us and helps us expand who we are and how we relate to the world, how we think about the society around us. And and so the status quo can reinforce all of that and nothing changes. Uh, So I think it's important to challenge that so that we grow as people individually and socially. So what has the reception to your show been like? It, it totally varies. Um, you know, we broadcasting, like, as you would know, you often have no idea how many people are listening. Mm. It's at 10 o'clock on Sunday night, so it's a time when, you know, a lot of people are sort of turning in for the weekend. But it gets varied feedback. In fact, only a few weeks ago, I was playing one piece, uh, actually by an ex-staff person of Monash, who's now back in the United States, And I got two messages into the studio during the piece. One saying it was the best thing they'd ever heard on PBS. Another saying that I should be sacked for playing (laughs) because it was so dreadful. I'm a volunteer presenter, so, you know, being sacked wouldn't make a huge difference to me financially. But, uh, yeah, so the the responses are are very difficult. And, and in fact, just a couple of days ago, I was talking to a friend, she's saying, I love tuning into your show because I like you but really I can't listen to the music for very long so the, the responses vary a lot and occasionally you know people call in and ask you know is there something wrong with the record or uh, <laughs> so it, 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 gets, it gets a mixed response. Mm-hmm. So then I guess do you think that people are generally quite open to these niche styles or do you think this kind of music can become a little bit esoteric and elitist in a way? Uh, I think there's a great fear that it can be become esoteric and elitist, and I think that's what we have to work hard to try and stop that from happening, because that's the last thing I think this sort of music should be. But the problem is the music industry is so commercial that we mm-hmm. think we can only relate to what we know and what's popular and what we're familiar with. Whereas music that's very different from that isn't more difficult to understand, it's just that we're less familiar with it. So we, it, becomes, it, it begins to be seen as elitist 
when in fact it's just that it's unfamiliar. So I think it's part of our role as music presenters. I believe very much it's the role of music education, not just in universities, but in, in primary schools as well, to open the ears of people to different sorts of music. You play, you know, the, this, this sort of music that I'm talking about to a baby and they will, you know, they will relax to it or they'll be curious about it and listen to it. We learn to be more discriminating about what we listen to and, and learn to think of some music as inaccessible. It's not innate to us. And my, I use my dog as a constant example. He always comes into the room whenever I play Stockhausen. So, you know, if my dog can enjoy it, I mean, he is extraordinarily intelligent, of course, but nonetheless, um, I think he's a good example of uh, that that we're socialised into thinking that music is beyond us or, or, or inaccessible. It's not innate to the music or to us. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. think that broadening artistic tastes can influence the way people approach life overall? Um, or can it, yeah, as Lydia said, Ab- be seen as like a form of elitism? A- a- absolutely. And this, this is something that people like Adorno wrote about, uh, the, uh, the um, theorists, um, uh, uh, ascetic theorist uh, from Germany, uh, Adorno, wrote about the ways in which if different sorts of music will play different roles to us. So he was, I'm not totally sure this is really correct, but his view was that so often we use music to placate us, to make us feel good. And that can in fact have a very detrimental effect because it lulls us into a sense of the world is all okay. I feel happy and relaxed because I'm listening to some nice music. And so we accept all the horrors and injustices of the world. Whereas if music is more confronting to us, it can force us to recognise that there is a real ugliness around us that we need to take on board and acknowledge. His famous statement that any poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric, and by that he meant that the notion of poetry as something of beauty and and consolation after the horrors of Auschwitz is a barbaric notion that we need to use art as a way to make us confront the ugliness of the world. And I think it can do that. I'm not sure that it happens quite as straightforwardly as we sometimes think when we read the, you know, the sort of theories of people like Adorno. But I think music can very much stir in us an attitude to ourselves and to the world around us that we can then build on. It won't happen automatically. We have to then think what we will do with what music does to us. But the more confronting music is, I think, the more likely it is to make us think differently about ourselves and about the world. That's very interesting. Thank you, Ian, for that. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And, um, yeah, I suppose this is sort of like a lot of... There's a lot of discourse in academia about arts overall and, yeah, that controversy of, you know, art for art's sake, art for enjoyment, or should it be political and should we be do something about doing mm. something more with it kind of thing, particularly yeah. from, like, you know, modernism onwards where beauty was almost, you know, that's what you wanted to avoid kind of thing. Mm, um, exactly, And as yes. you are mentioning, doing something uh, more 
embracing confrontation in a way. Um, excellent. Thank you so much for all of that. So we are going to go on to our second song break for today. So you've chosen The Seven Deadly Sins, the prologue um, to this by Kurt Weill. Would you mind just giving this a quick introduction as well? Yeah, well, this kind of fits in well with what we've just talked about. It's a, um, it's a work that was written by Kurt Weill and Bertolt Brecht. Uh, Bertolt Brecht, of course, being a Marxist uh, um, playwright and poet from from the early part of the 20th century in Germany. Seven Deadly Sins is kind of a parody of the religious notion of the seven deadly sins, where two uh, daughters who are really the same person in different forms are sent by their family throughout the cities of America to make money. And they they, uh, sort of confront the seven deadly sins, but they're translated into uh, different aspects of capitalism in the work and the prologue kind of introduces their journey. Excellent. Well, we hope you all enjoy. We'll be back shortly. Welcome back, everyone, to Radio Monash's No Theory. Simone and I are here today with musicologist Dr Ian Parsons. So, Ian, from your bio, we learned that you previously worked in social policy and law reform. What prompted your career shift into musicology and the arts? Well, it was partly what I wanted to wanted to do and it was partly just what had to happen because the work I was doing in in social policy finished Uh, you know as five billion things were being cut by government uh, so was the job that I was doing at the time which was some research work in access to social justice for people in regional communities in um, at Deakin University but uh, but music has always been my underlying passion, you know, so I, while the work I did in social policy, which was almost always around issues of social justice, particularly, but not solely for people with a disability, was also stuff that I was very, very um, passionate about and felt was really important to address. Music has always been, I guess, the centre of my life. So when things happened with my, you know, what had been my day jobs until around 2013, I saw it as an opportunity to sort of return to music. I came back to study, did my honours year at Monash, and then went on to do the PhD at Monash as well. So it was kind of just a nice uh, confluence of of opportunity and and, um, passion coming together. So have you noticed any overlaps in uh, the skills or ideas that you took from your previous career? Uh, I Look, I think so. It, it's not super overt, but I, I guess the, you know, the fact that a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, about the ways in which music relates to who we are as human beings and how we connect with our environment, our community, our societies, my interest in that aspect of music, I guess, comes from, or at least it's part of the same thing that was driving my interest in social policy. So it, it, it's all ultimately about who we are as human beings, the sorts of societies and communities and neighbourhoods and worlds that we build together. Uh, I, I think, you know, as someone who has, a, has had a long-standing social policy interest, the the idea that we should be building worlds that are based on notions of justice and fairness and equality are things that I hope that music can also find a way of 
uh, stirring within us. And that doesn't have to necessarily be in the most obvious ways of political songs and that type of stuff, but it can be through some of the things we've been talking about, the way that music, the connections that are made in music and the ideas that we can build into music can lead us to think in different ways and hopefully in ways that make us question who we are and how we fit in the world. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's actually something that we've noticed from our guests a lot throughout um, the past few episodes particularly as we've spoken to artists and writers etc how when trying to I guess make a contribution or do something even if it's um, more political through any type of art form it's not necessarily on purpose sometimes it's just you know sharing your truth or your perspective the way you've experienced the world and inherently it'll just do those things it might become more political or change people's minds open them Mm -hmm. up to new perspectives kind of thing um so yeah that's really interesting um pursuing an artistic career or even an academic one can be viewed as quite unconventional or risky even do you feel like you've ever been affected by these stigmas because they are i guess stigmas or stereotypes in a way do you feel like they've ever influenced you at all Yeah, look, uh, affected in a way that, uh, I guess, uh, or the stigma that is sometimes related with pursuing these areas in, you know, in life are not stigmas that I've worried about, but I've probably been quite happy with, you know, so I, I, you know, I've not been, you know, financially successful and, and had careers that have led to, you know, huge opportunities in terms of um, status and those sorts of things but uh, they've made me feel that I'm doing something that I think is worth doing and and I think both in the arts and in academia we as much as we can be driven by that I think the uh, the more worth we get from it there is so much discussion now about the arts and academia in terms of what they contribute to the economy and all of this sort of stuff but i think it, it, that's missing the point of why we have them they, they're more about what they contribute to who we are as human beings and mm. what they enrich in us we we can learn and grow so much from our engagement with the arts and academia through our engagement with knowledge, the constant focus on economic outcomes ultimately, I think, impoverishes us, impoverishes us as, as people. So I'm more than happy to be seen to be someone who's doing kind of the lefty type, um, you know, sort of stuff that that uh, is useless because I actually think it's what we're really about and what we really need to be working on. Yeah, and not only does it like like that whole focus on like the economy and money like impoverish us I think it also creates a lot of music that's very similar and also just doesn't really challenge the status quo absolutely mm, yeah. yes that that's right it, it just perpetuates something that's familiar and therefore something people will spend money on mm. and and then it becomes a vicious circle and nothing changes other than that the people who are investing in that make a lot of money and the people who are interested i guess in trying to make uh, art and ourselves and the world a better and fairer place get poorer yeah exactly and that doesn't really empower um a lot of social change 
yes. Mind you, we have to be very careful about that within the spheres we work in ourselves. It's very easy to think because we work in the arts or we work in areas of academia that we are therefore enlightened and open and all of that. And we, we can be very misogynist, we can be very homophobic, we can be racist. All those things we need to constantly question in ourselves. Fortunately, that's happening. I think that people are looking at and thinking about those things much, much more now than they used to. But we need to keep doing it because we can lull ourselves into a sense of our own kind of self-righteousness if we're not careful. Have you ever had to say um, no and set boundaries throughout your professional life? Uh, um, I, I think there have been times where, certainly in my radio presentation, there's been times where I've perhaps needed to present stuff that, that maybe, I think it's maybe a bit too commercial and uh, that I would prefer not to, but beyond that, maybe not so much. Mm, that's lucky. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I'm actually teaching a unit now at Monash uh, around uh, music industry that involves some of these issues that I, I'm not sure if my angle on the issues is the angle that the uh, person designing the unit would be totally wanting presented. So sometimes I'm challenged by that. and. Um, uh, so, yes, we are always, I think, having our own values and boundaries tested by the things we're asked to do because mm -hmm. the agendas of those who want us to do them might be different from, from our own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent. So just to finish up today, Ian, um, looking towards the future, obviously a lot of these sort of modern aesthetics and 20th century surgeon artistic experimentation, um, the kind of music that you're very interested in, it's sort of been catalyzed or driven by, you know, large scale social and political changes such as the world wars, revolutions, mass migration, that kind of thing. Do you think that following COVID-19 um, will see a similar sort of effect with like new types of art or aesthetics emerging? In music? I, cer I certainly hope so and it, it's, it's actually funny you bring that up because we were discussing that very issue in the unit I was talking about uh, just a minute ago about the effects of COVID-19 on, on music and we while that was mainly being discussed in terms of the difficulties it created for musicians and getting work and, and, and the lack of support from governments and so on we also talked about the ways it caused and I've seen this a lot and been talking with musicians about this quite a bit about the ways it's made musicians rethink the ways they create music, the ways they engage with each other to collaborate musically and the ways they seek to engage with their audiences. So something like COVID-19 uh, puts some limits on what we do, but it also creates opportunities for us to rethink what we do. And so I think it's, it, it will be up to us whether we use those possibilities in positive ways or whether we see them as limiting ways. You know, so instead of thinking about it as something about how can I keep doing what I used to do despite COVID-19, we need to be thinking, what does COVID-19 tell me I need to do differently that might be make us a better place, a better world to live in and us better people to live in it? Insightful. I, yeah, I totally agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent. And I think, I mean, a lot of creative people over the past year have felt, I guess, quite nihilistic and downhearted um, with the situation, almost like a creative dry patch. But moving forwards, yeah, I think that we'll definitely see all of those things emerging and people adapting um, mm. and using mm. it to fuel things. So. 
Fantastic. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much again, Ian, for coming on the show and um, sharing with us all of these wonderful insights. Thank um, you for having me. <laughs> it's been our absolute pleasure. Mm. Um, so, yes, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in today. We'll be back next week, same time, 2 p.m. through Radio Monash. We're going to finish with Ian's third song choice of the day, Sonata in D Major by Domenico Scarlatti. Did you want to very quickly introduce this before we wrap up? I just picked this because Scarlatti wrote 550 five piano sonata or keyboard sonatas they're all very short and they're all absolute little gems and it's just to show that you don't have to be big and massive to create something beautiful and amazing well thank you ian lovely thanks enjoy everyone and have a great week <laughs>